Would you take your Bible with me and turn to 1 Thessalonians this morning, kids? Three years old, four years old, kindergartners, you can make your way to the back and you'll head up to your classroom this morning. For the rest of us again, 1 Thessalonians this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, We're going to look at verses 13 through 16 together. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there still are a few on the back table back there. I'd encourage you to stand up and go pick one up. Uh, And if there aren't any, there's a few back there. But if those run out, there are, in fact, uh, soft cover Bibles back there underneath the the offering box. Uh, Feel free to pick one of those up. And if you pick one of those copies up, know that that's our gift to you. That's... uh, that's a Bible for you. We want to, to give you a, a copy of the Word of God this morning. If, uh, and if you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a friend, a family member, a co-worker, someone who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't have a copy of the Bible, go ahead and pick one of those up and give those, give those away to those folks, folks as well. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 16. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But but wrath has come upon them at last. Where there's smoke, there's fire. I think I've used this metaphor before, but you know this, people say this pretty regularly. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And what what that is indicating when someone says that is that there has to be a source for the thing that they're witnessing. What the evidence is has to have a source. There has to be something behind the scenes going on that's causing the smoke. And when it's smoke, we say that it's fire. When you go to a restaurant and the server brings you your food, you know somewhere behind that door there's a a chef and he's making the food. You have thoughts, you had several thoughts today already, uh, and that indicates to you that you have, in fact, have a brain. Paul observed in the Thessalonians evidence. Paul observed evidence in the Thessalonians that they received what he says here in verse 13. They received the word of God as the word of God and not as the word of man. When Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, they brought the word to the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians believed that it was the word of God that had come to them. Even though it was two men delivering the message to them, they believed They believed that it was the Word of God. And this, in verse 13, is why Paul is grateful. And why he can say, we also thank God constantly for this. 
Paul is always thanking God. When he goes before God, he's always thanking God that the Thessalonians received the word from him and Silas as the word of God and not as the word of men. But the question is how, and he answers this here in this passage, how does Paul know or how can he be so sure that the Thessalonians did in fact receive the word of God from Paul and Silas and they believed that it was the word of God and not the word of men? How can he be so confident? He's not there with them. He's writing to them from a great distance. He hasn't been there. He's only spent three-ish weeks in Thessalonica. He hasn't, he hasn't spent years upon years with these people, and yet he, he communicates confident assurance that they received the word, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. How can he be so sure? What's the smoke that he sees in the lives of the Thessalonians because of what he observed there for those three weeks, but also what Timothy reported on? What, can he, what is the smoke that gives evidence that the fire is still, in fact, burning? A couple of weeks ago, when we considered uh, the first 12 verses in chapter 2, Paul in verse 5 said, For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know. So, I think when I, if I'm being honest with myself, when I get to verse 13, and when Paul says something, or even go back to chapter 1. If we go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in your prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm tempted to do, and I think what a lot of people are, we're tempted to say this is hyperbolic. How could, how could Paul actually be giving constant thanks to God? But the reality here is that Paul didn't, and he says this in his own words in verse 5 of chapter 2, he didn't come to them with words of flattery. Now, John preached last week. If you were here last week, you heard John preach on Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20, which is right there in the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment, where God says, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Ninth Commandment forbids flattery. It forbids flattery. The Proverbs say, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. He, he's tripping him up. And the Proverbs also say, a lying tongue hates, it, hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. You remember the definition that John gave last week? Flattery is puffing up another's ego so they'll do what you want. But Paul's not doing that here with the Thessalonians. He's not puffing them up. He's not saying, I, I thank God for you, but this is under the surface. He's thinking to himself, not really. He's saying, no, I genuinely thank God constantly for the reality that you believed that the word of God when it came to you was not the word of man. Paul isn't saying this here in verse 13 just to get the Thessalonians going in the direction that he thinks that they should be going, that he wants them to be going. 
We have to take his word as legitimately grateful for how the Thessalonians received the word. Paul sees actual evidence in the Thessalonians. Actual evidence that can only point to God's work within them. The word of God received as that. The word of God and not as the word of man. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the modernist movement uh, effectively undermines Scripture in the culture at large. Modernist scholars uh, and theologians spend a lot of time questioning the historical accuracy of Scripture. They sought to, in their terms, demythologize Scripture. They said, this is a, there's a lot of myth contained here, things that can't be proved, um, things like miracles, things like God parting the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk through it. They took the miraculous and the unexplainable and attributed those things to just a first century worldview. These people are writing the way that they interpreted the world around them. And it was went and it went as far as to deny the resurrection of Jesus and reduce Jesus to simply a figure that existed to do a bit of good for humanity. Jesus is a pretty good, pretty good dude. Uh, he's a good teacher. Uh, we like some of the stuff he says. Some of it we're not really into, but but we'll take a little bit for ourselves and mix him in with some other historically important men who said some good stuff too. The desire of the modernist movement was to reconcile the Christianity uh, Christianity of previous generations, the Christianity presented in the Bible with a more modern worldview. I was thinking more scientifically, empirically, touching things around us, observing things with our five senses, and then saying this can't be, in fact, true. The modernist movement, though, when it came to to the approach to Scripture, didn't accomplish that goal at all. It reconciled nothing. Rather, what it did was undermine the sufficiency, the authority, the infallibility, and the errancy of Scripture. It caused many men and women to question their faith, and it caused many men and women to deny that the Bible was, in fact, what it claims to be. And so it moved people away from biblical views, and it constructed an entirely new religion. A religion that still calls itself Christian, but a religion where now in our day and age, some 44% of so-called evangelicals deny that Jesus is, in fact, God. Let's say that he is just a good teacher. Or where one-third of self-proclaiming evangelicals in the United States believe that the Bible contains some helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. A world where one-third of self-proclaiming evangelicals in the United States believe modern science largely disproves the accounts given in Scripture. And because of this, because this is the culture that we live in, the pressures, largely, mostly, typically, the pressures to believe that the Bible is what it claims to be, 
the infallible, authoritative, inerrant, inspired Word of God is not, in fact, cultural pressure anymore. And so, when someone receives the Word of God and declares it to be such as the Word of God, it's not typically because of mainstream cultural pressure. And this is exactly what we see to be true of the Thessalonians as well. The pressures that the Thessalonians felt from their culture were not pushing them towards accepting Paul and Silas's word to them as the word of God, but those cultural pressures were moving them the opposite direction. They were saying, the, this, these men speak to you words that cannot be the word of God. But, Paul said, we came to you and we delivered to you not the word of man, but the word of God. And there is evidence in your life that you received it as the word of God and is in fact the word of God. So there are two ideas in this text that I want to explore together this morning. We began to introduce them already, but two ideas from this text that are going to guide our time together. And the first is gratitude for the work of the word. And second is the evidence of the work of the Word. So first, okay, first, gratitude for the work of the Word. And if you remember back to the first week again, I referenced this a moment ago, but when Paul in in chapter 1, verse 2 says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We reflected heavily on the gratitude that Paul, in fact, expresses for the Thessalonians. Gratitude to God for God's work in the lives of fellow believers is a key way that we can demonstrate, as Christians, everyday faithfulness. And Paul revisits that same gratitude here again in chapter 2, verse 13. In chapter 1, Paul says that he gives thanks uh, by constantly mentioning the Thessalonians in prayer and by remembering, again, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope that's evident in the lives of the Thessalonians. But now he says in chapter 2, verse 13, he says that he also thanks God that they received the word of God as the word of God and not as the word of man. Simple gratitude. I am grateful that you received the word of God and not as the word of man. This is immediately applicable for us as a church. Because if you're looking for a simple way to express gratitude to God, if you're wondering to yourself, how can I be more thankful in my my life, in my day-to-day? A simple way to express gratitude to God For a brother and sister in Christ, this, again, is a great way. When the word of God came to you or to a fellow believer in this room, that person, you or that person you're thinking about, did not disregard it. Sometimes in our lives, we communicate the gospel to to people who do not believe. We communicate the gospel to people who do not believe, 
And that person immediately turns the conversation to questioning the legitimacy of Scripture. They'll say something like, the Bible upon which you are basing this gospel that you are communicating to me, upon which you are telling me who God is, uh, is an ancient book and is therefore irrelevant. Or they'll say something like, it's full of contradictions and errors and a bunch of weird stuff. But one thing that is implicit here in our passage this morning is that you cannot be a Christian and believe that the Bible is man-made. If the Bible is in fact man-made, then you and I have legitimately no hope. No hope that the things promised here in the book that's open on your lap, you have no hope that the things promised here are the reality. But if the Bible is not made, man-made, rather it is the word of God, we do in fact have hope and in fact concrete assurance that the promises made are and will be promises kept. The work of the word brings about trust in the word. The work of the word brings about trust in the word. The more that the word works on us, the more we learn to trust God and what he tells us in scripture. You do not Trust another person in your life, in any relationship you have, by creating relational distance. You will not trust your spouse if you spend no time together talking with your spouse. You will not trust your coworkers if you spend no time engaging with your coworkers when it comes time to execute on a task. You will develop no trust between you and another person. And this is true also of God. If you spend no time with God in his word, you will not trust God. But the work of the word is that it brings about trust in the word. The trust in what God has said and what he has promised to you. The more the word works on us, the more we learn to trust him. And so, friends, I hope that this, I hope that you're spending daily time in God's word. Again, we've laid a Bible reading plan before you as an opportunity for you to have some organization to spend time in God's word every, every day. If you need one of those, again, there are copies back on the table back there. You can check the weekly email. And if you're here this morning and you're like, I'm not sure that I trust what God has said to me in his word. The commands to me seem burdensome. The salvation seems like it's not really for me. The God who is revealed seems like a God that you're not too keen on. 
then all I can tell you is that you need to spend more time in the Word. You will not find resolutions to those questions apart from God's inspired, authoritative, infallible, inerrant Word. You will find more questions, and you won't find answers. The work of the Word brings about trust in the Word. And so, in the context of gratitude, when you see a brother or sister in Christ living in everyday faithfulness, you can thank God because the Word is at work in the life of that fellow believer because they are learning to live according to God's Word. And friends, this is an easy way to express gratitude for a brother or sister in Christ. When you Go to pray, thank God for the work of the Word and the lives of your brothers and sisters, your fellow church members here at Buffalo City Church. This is the example that Paul gives. Paul was grateful to God because the work of God or the Word of God was at work in the Thessalonians. They did not believe that what Paul brought them, what Silas brought them, was something that was in fact man-made. But they believed that Paul and Silas' word to them was in fact the very word of God. But how did Paul know this was the case for the Thessalonians? If he says, I'm thanking God constantly that you received the word, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. How does he know that this is the case. And that brings us to the second idea this morning. The evidence of the work of the word. What is the evidence that Paul sees that the word is at work in the Thessalonians? The evidence that the word was at work in the Thessalonians is that the Thessalonians suffered like the churches in Judea. The evidence is that they suffered like the churches suffered in Judea. Now, Judea is the region containing Jerusalem. And the book of Acts records the events of the early church immediately following the ascension of Jesus. So Jesus ascends into heaven right at the beginning of the book of Acts. And then the next seven chapters in, at the beginning of the book of Acts all take place in Jerusalem. And the church is growing It's exploding with growth, and as a result, great persecution is happening against the new Christians at the hands of the Jewish people, specifically the leadership. So Paul says here that the Thessalonians, look at verse uh, 14. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. How did they become imitators of them? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The Jews in Jerusalem, that's their countrymen, that's their people, it's the the prevalent group around them. They suffered at the hands of their own people. And the Thessalonians suffer in the same way. And this is what Paul says is the evidence that the word was received as the word of God and not as the word of man. 
the Christians in Jerusalem were converted from Judaism and were persecuted then immediately by the Jews. The Christians in Thessalonica were converted from the Roman imperial cult and were persecuted by the Thessalonian city officials. And the accusation that the city officials and the Jews in Thessalonica make against Paul and Silas when they bring the gospel and declare it was that they were turning the world upside down. You can read about this in Acts chapter 17. They were turning the world upside down. They said, those men who are turning the world upside down are here. They're in Thessalonica. And that's what the gospel did in Jerusalem too. It turned everything upside down. That's what the gospel does everywhere. It turns everything upside down. Because you remember a few weeks ago, when you're on a path as an individual, when you're on a path other than one that leads the narrow way, the one, other than the one that leads to life, you're on a path that is headed for destruction. And you have to turn. And you have to go the other way. And you have to admit humbly that I don't know the way. I don't understand which direction I have to be going in order to be saved. The gospel requires directional change. But not just for the individual, not just the person who is headed on a path for destruction. You can't just keep going on that same path and expect to wind up with eternal life. Rather, when the, when the gospel comes to an individual, when the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sins and forgiveness can be had through Him, new life can be had through Him, then that requires turning from sin and moving towards Jesus who said very clearly, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the gospel requires directional change. When the gospel comes to you and you believe that's the word of God and not the word of man, you, you then change course. Your life changes course. You can't do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, but When the Holy Spirit does that work and when new life is breathed into you, then you have the ability to move towards God. So, in the gospel, takes hold of individuals. It turns their life around. They don't keep going the same way. They change direction entirely. But this isn't just the case for individuals. It's the case for entire cities and cultures as well. This is what happens in Thessalonica and why the city officials and why the Jewish leadership at Thessalonica is concerned. They're going to upend the apple cart. They're going to stir up cultural chaos. These people go from city to city preaching the good news of this man they call Jesus and it changes the dynamic of our communities. We can't have that. 
We have to stop it. And when the growing church in Jerusalem believed the guy the Jews had killed is the Messiah, and that he came back from the dead, and that he was, in fact, God in the flesh, that upset a bunch of Judean apple carts. And when the growing church in Thessalonica believed that the guy the Jews had killed was Lord and not Caesar, that upset a bunch of Thessalonican apple carts. And when those apple carts get upended, when the gospel comes into a community and begins to transform the people who are part of that community, the cultural protectors say, stop, we liked it the way it was before, leave it alone. They think they need to continue protecting the culture. They get their tunics in a tangle, and then they, then they start persecuting these people who start believing that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Or that the man that the Jews killed was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so in Thessalonica, the city authorities then took action. They pounded on the door and they extorted money from the Christians hoping that would put an end to their silly Jesus is Lord phase. But it didn't. That's the evidence that when the money, when their bank accounts were drained because the city officials said, pay us, you can't live here and claim that Jesus is Lord. And they said, here's the money. We will willingly suffer this persecution. And then they didn't stop saying Jesus is Lord. That's the evidence that the word was received as the word of God and not as the word of man. The suffering of the Thessalonians was evidence that the word was received as the word of God. If, if the word of God was not received as the word of God, but rather as the word of man, why bother suffering anything? Why? Why would, if you said, well, these guys showed up, they made up some stuff. Um, We believed it for a little while, but if you didn't think it was actually God who said it, then why would you, why would you care? We'd be like, no, I'll keep my money. Thanks. Yeah, Caesar is Lord. Good. There, There would be no cause to endure any kind of suffering if the word that Paul and Silas preached to the Thessalonians was the word of man. I'm a Vikings fan. I heard some of you laugh immediately. If you put a gun to my head, I would have no issue changing teams, just picking another team. Maybe that makes me a bandwagon fag. I don't think so. But if the trigger was pulled, the blood that was spilled would be red and not purple. No matter what my t-shirts say, no matter how many tears I shed on my bed as a teenager in 1998. I am not willing to suffer. Well, 
to that extent. Be- because there's no, no internal long-term significance to my NFL fandom. And if the word Paul and Silas brought to the Thessalonians was man-made, then when the persecution came, just pick another team. Just pick Caesar as Lord. It's good. It's fine. But the word that came to the Thessalonians was not man-made. And so the Thessalonians suffered. And that was the evidence to Paul. That was the evidence to Paul. That the Thessalonians had received the word as the word of God and not as the word of man. That moves us to a conclusion. A few things before we go to the Lord's table together this morning. A few things for you to consider. Our lives should give evidence for the Bible as the word of God and not as the word of man. Just like the Thessalonian example here, the Thessalonian church. Their lives gave example through what they suffered at the hands of the city officials their lives gave example or gave evidence that the word of God that came to them was in fact the word of God and not the word of man. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Our belief that the Bible is in fact the word of God and that Jesus Christ is the word of God that took on flesh must be evidenced with how we live. As cultural winds shift and Christianity is viewed as antiquated and irrelevant, it's been going on for a couple hundred years now. I reference the modernist movement from the 19th and 20th centuries. These are not new ideas in our culture. But as fewer and fewer people who even proclaim to be evangelical Christians deny things like the deity of Christ, we as Christians need to ask ourselves, how do we respond when the name of Christ is in fact maligned? When someone comes to you and says, Jesus Christ is not God, how do we respond? Will we in fact be silent or will we say that something out uh, or someone other than Christ is Lord? Or will we stand firm and declare that it is only Christ who is Lord, no matter the cost? Now, mostly in our culture, it's reputation. Mostly in our culture, the, the threats against us, so no one's extorting money, I don't think, from any of us. But the reality is that the threshold, while it's relatively low, will give indication if our lives will declare that, that, that the word of God is in fact the word of God and not the word of man. I want you to note here something too in this passage, in verse 14 in particular. When Paul says that they suffered, the Thessalonians suffered the same things, he says, from your own countrymen. This is not some ethereal, outside, outside of our realm threat. This is everyday stuff. These are the people who live across the street. They shop at the same grocery store. There's only a few. 
They'll sit around the same Thanksgiving dinner table as you. And are you prepared to stand firm and declare Christ is Lord when you know that the people across from you or that you bump into with your shopping cart oppose that truth? Again, this isn't some external group of people who you don't know. When our lives give evidence that Jesus is Lord, people you know well will tell you that you're wasting your time serving in the local church, going to congregational worship on Sunday morning. People you know well will call you judgmental because you refuse to watch the same immoral entertainment that they're talking about around the water cooler. They will question your parenting. They will question your use of money. They will question why you refuse to just be true to yourself instead of acting in ways that are self-sacrificial, following Jesus into his death. Why would you follow a dead man into death? But friends, we don't follow a dead man into death. We follow a man who died and who was raised into death with the full assurance that we also will be raised with him on the last day. We can lay down our lives willingly for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of the gospel, knowing that we will in fact be raised on the last day, that we follow him into the grave and we follow him into eternity. That will not register. That will not make sense. And people will persecute you for believing that. Some of you have already endured it. Some of you will continue to endure it. And when the threshold for that is low, we must stand firm and be faithful. Because if we don't, when the threshold is high, we will be quick to relinquish, to call the word of God the word of man, and to declare that something other than Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, all this implies that the Word of God has gripped you. That when you read the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit is actively working inside of you and transforming you and making you more like the person of Jesus Christ. And that you, in fact, do have new life in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life to all those who believe. If you're here this morning and you say, I believe this to be true. I believe this is the Word of God. I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and died for me. He lived a perfect life, and the death that I deserve, he took upon himself so that I could live forever, that he was raised on the third day and now is seated at the Father's right hand. And if you say that you believe that, then you can have full assurance that the Holy Spirit has given you new life. None of us was on the right path, but Jesus delivered us off of the road that leads to destruction on the one that leads to life. And this is a gift of God, not according to anything you did or ever can do. And if you're, so if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know this man that came into the world, you say, I think that maybe I believe some of this, that the answer for you this morning is turn from your sin, turn from your doubt, trust Jesus Christ in him fully. Stop going your way and acknowledge him as the true way. Ask for forgiveness and trust him for the eternal life that he, only he, can give. That's the first concluding point. Our lives must give evidence for the Bible as the word of God and not as the word of man. The second is this. Give time 
This is a little bit outside of our normal application, but I want you to think about this this morning. Give time to reading about believers who faithfully endured suffering and remained steadfast. The history of the Christian church is chock full of people who suffered and who remained steadfast. Like the Thessalonians became imitators of the churches in Judea who suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. So we can see clearly and become imitators of lives that give evidence of the work of God through their patient, endurance and suffering. You can start in the book of Acts. We have the examples of the apostles. Read the book of Acts and see how they faithfully and joyfully endured suffering over and over and over again. We can also take consideration of men and women even in somewhat recent history, like men like Puritan John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, or Richard Wormbrand, or Corey Ten Boom, or Elizabeth Elliot, and many others. These people didn't patiently endure suffering because they were really good at toughing it out. Rather, they patiently endured suffering because they received the word of God as the word of God and not as the word of man. Not something empty and devoid of power, but these men and women strengthened by the author of the word who has authority over all things. The patient endurance in suffering that they experienced was the smoke that gave evidence to the fire that was burning because of God's regenerative work in their lives. Last concluding point this morning. Give thanks to God for the work of the word in your life and in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ. Like Paul does here when he writes this letter to the Thessalonians, practice practical gratitude. It's simple. It's simple. Just do what Paul does here. He wrote a note. He wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to a group of people said, I thank God constantly for the way that God is working in you. Go to God in prayer. Give thanks for people. Hear fellow church members at Buffalo City Church and give thanks to God for them by name. Don't just say thanks for those people. Say the names. Bring them before God. Do this in the context of your community group. Do this around your dinner table with your family. It might be those people or it might be someone else. Give thanks. When you sit down to do your Bible reading in the morning or in the evening, whenever you do that, give thanks to God for a church member here at Buffalo City Church and how you see God at work in their life. Find time to pray and make part of your prayer time giving thanks for your fellow Buffalo City Church members and the work that you see God doing in and through them. Don't reinvent, don't reinvent the wheel. Because they're like, I don't know how to do this. Yes, you do. Paul does it right here. Just write him a note. <laughs> he wrote these people a letter and said, I'm thankful to God for you, that you received the word in this way, that these sorts of things are being produced in you. I'm grateful. Just write a note or a text message this afternoon. Express to that person why you're thinking God for them, and what you see in their life. Friends, this is a, such a simple way that we can build up the church together. A simple way that we can, as God's people, invest in the lives of one another just simply 
by expressing gratitude. It's a way that we together can demonstrate every day faithfulness. Three things give evidence for the Bible as the word of God and not the word of man. Give time to reading about believers both in the Bible and and outside of Scripture who faithfully endured suffering and remained steadfast. And finally, give thanks to God for the work of the Word in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your Word. God, we thank you for the truth that's contained here. God, we thank you that you have convinced us that your word is in fact your word and not the word of man, not man-made. God, if there are those here this morning who do not, do not regard the word as the word that you gave, authoritative, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, God, would you, even this morning, change hearts, breathe new life through your spirit. God, would you unite us Cause us as your people to know more, to understand, to grow. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.